0: Hi, everybody. Thank you for joining me here on the Bare Bones Yoga Podcast Conversations for Yoga Teachers. My name is Karen Fabian. I'm the founder of Bare Bones Yoga. I'm a yoga teacher and educator, and my goal here is to provide you, the yoga teacher, and other listeners with interesting, compelling content designed to pique your interest in teaching help you grow as a teacher, and support you on your path to sharing this wonderful practice with your students. I've been teaching for over 14 years, and through my classes, workshops, online courses, books, and other content, I focus on the anatomy of yoga and how teachers can learn this complex subject and present it to their students in an understandable way, all designed to help them bring more impact to their teaching. Even though we're not in the same room, I want you to envision for each episode that we've sat down for tea in a cozy coffee shop. Some days we'll talk about technical teaching topics, while some days we might have a teacher friend join in on the conversation, and other days we'll face some of the personal challenges that can come up when we take on the journey of being a teacher, knowing that the more authentic we can be, the more we can impact others. For more information about my products and programs, and to contact me at any time, just visit my website at barebonesyoga.com. Let's get into today's episode.
1: Hello, and welcome to Conversations for Yoga Teachers. I'm your host, Karen Fabian, and this is episode 18. In the last episode, I did a review of cues for some standing poses. It quickly moved up in my podcast stats to be a listener favorite. So I decided to do a second episode where I focus primarily on poses on the ground. Now, first of all, I want to acknowledge one of my listeners, Joanne, for leaving such a nice review on iTunes. Joanne said, I love Karen's insightfulness and how she stays on target with her topics. She shares her experiences and gives you suggestions of what has worked for her as a teacher. I look forward to future podcasts with Karen thank you so much, Joanne. Uh, I have a couple of, actually three reviews up on iTunes, and I love to see people's notes and comments about the podcast. Sometimes they get comments on the website or emails with feedback about different episodes I've done. So thank you to her and thank you to all of you who have left any comments or sent me email or posted on my social media pages. I really, really enjoy hearing from you. And always know if there's a particular topic that you'd like me to cover, feel free to post about that too, because that's a great way for me to get ideas. So a few things before I get into the examples. I mentioned these last time and I want to reiterate it, especially if you missed that earlier episode. One, I am not saying my cues are right and the only ways that you should articulate the practice. My cues are just a suggestion and an attempt to start a conversation or at least a thought process in your mind as to what is the most effective way to help people move on the mat. The second thing is this. You might wonder, well, how am I supposed to know if my cues are working? It's not like the students are talking to me, telling me if they're confused. And I get that. That is a conundrum and one of the challenges of teaching. The students aren't saying anything and you're the only one talking. So what can you do? Well, as you're teaching, watch your students because the best barometer regarding your cues is right in front of you. Are they doing what you suggest or not? Do they look confused, distracted, There's a ton you can discern simply by looking at them. If you're lucky, a few people will give you some feedback after class. This can be really helpful because it will help get you real-time feedback about the cues, plus it will give you a chance to ask them some questions too. Whenever somebody comes up to me to ask me a question, I try as much as possible to ask two or three questions back to them so we can start a real conversation. But many times, one of the most powerful things you can feel as a teacher is the connection with a student because something you say creates a specific action in their body that you believe will help them create greater steadiness and integrity in the pose. You will only experience this if you're watching them. And I can tell you, in my experience, when that that happens, you feel really great. You feel connected to your students, you know they're paying attention, and you know that your words and your cues are helping them. Now, one more thing, if you missed it, go back and listen to my earlier episode 17 on cues for a few of the standing poses. You can catch it on my website, barebonesyoga.com, and I'll include it in the show notes for this episode, the link. So let's go through some fundamental poses that are on the floor, either the belly or the back. As we're going through these, I'm going to focus on the cues, but there are, of course, other things to review for each pose. I want to break down for you what we should look at to get a good overall sense of each pose. The first thing is the primary action. Why are we doing this in the first place? The next thing is the key actions. What are the actual cues or words that you can say to describe what's happening in this pose? The next thing is, what are the key muscles in action? The next thing is, what are the key joints in action? Shoulder, knee, hip, what are they doing? The next thing is, Are there any modifications or reasons to not do the pose from a particular person's point of view? What we call contraindications. The next thing is, what are some things that you can look for as a teacher that might be anatomy-based challenges for the student? And then the last thing is, speaking to mind, spirit, attitude, just that kind of other part of yoga that doesn't have to do with just the physical body. Now, because we are today only focusing on the physical cues or key actions, but if you're looking for this full breakdown, an easy way to do it is to buy my anatomy manual. It gives you this format, the format I just went through, all those criteria for each of the key poses. You can get it on barebonesyoga.com on the page called Books, which you can get right from the homepage, and it's $65. I'll include the link in the show notes from my website Um, for this episode as well. So it's uh, easy for you to access to purchase. Now, let me say this. In my opinion, there are different kinds of cues. To find out more about these in detail, listen to podcast episode seven, and I'll include the link to it. There are action cues, which provide a one or two word action the student can do. There are alignment cues, which talk to the shape of the pose. There are anatomical cues, which bring in the actual anatomy that's applicable. And there's feeling-based cues, which are more found in restorative type classes, although you might find them also in general classes. These are the words that suggest how a student might feel or offer them ample opportunities to tap into how they do feel, because we don't really want to be saying you should feel this or you should feel that. So these restorative classes really can help Um, can give you more time to encourage your students to tap into that somatic sensation. And they also involve words that are a little less specific and actionable and tend to be more artistic. So here we go with the pose breakdown. Let's start with locust. So in locust pose, people are on their belly And let's take the kind of traditional presentation where they're on their belly and they have their arms reaching back by their sides and their palms facing down and their legs are extended back behind them. So let's first talk about some of the actions, anatomically speaking, in uh, this posture. So as we ask students to reach the arms straight back, the palms are facing down. And I talked about this quite a bit in the earlier episode um, 17 about the standing poses in that so much of what we do in yoga involves the hands facing the ground. And when the hands face down, the kind of natural reaction of most students, unless they're cued to do the alternative, is to hunch. And as you're listening, you can even just turn your hands down and then notice in your shoulders that tendency to roll the shoulders in. So that's internal rotation. So when we have students preparing for a locus pose and they reach their arms back, their palms are facing down. But we want to create the action of extension. So in this posture, as they lift off the ground with their upper body, keeping their hips rooted, they're moving their spine into extension, right? It's not moving into flexion. They're not bending the spine like in Ragdoll. They're lifting the chest off of the floor, therefore moving into spinal extension. And the palms are facing the ground as the arms reach back. So we're trying to create not only extension in the spine, but external rotation in the shoulders. So again, if you're listening to this and you're in a position where you can reach your arms back, as you lift the shoulders up and back, so think about the shoulder joint being comprised of the head of the humerus as it fits into the glenoid fossa of the scapula and the rotational ability due to the shape of the joint we can encourage students to roll the upper shoulders back. And so this generates that external rotation movement in locus pose, even though their palms are facing down. Now, as they do this, this is a perfect time for you to cue to their shoulder blades. Now this is different from cueing to their shoulders, and I really, really want you to um, make a mental note of this, especially when it comes to cues you may use in your teaching that don't distinguish between actions of the shoulder joint and actions of the scapula. So scapula shoulder blades, Shoulder joint is the connection between the scapula, the humerus and the clavicle. So the three bones that comprise the bones of the shoulder joint. So as we have students moving into extension of the spine and as we cue them to maybe we'll say, lift the chest off the floor, this action is facilitated by muscles in the back of the body, we're no longer really focusing on the muscles in the front of the body, like the pectoralis major, pectoralis minor, anterior deltoid, that we use so much in all those poses where our palms are down and where we're facing the floor and we're pushing away from it. Now we're trying to lift away from the floor. So just think about it. If we're trying to lift away from the floor, muscles that reside in the back of our body have to be creating that movement. Otherwise, we'd be using muscles in the front of the body to push away from the floor. So this is where we refer to anterior front line and posterior back line. And this starts to get into the contribution of not only muscles, but fascia, working in a coordinated um, kind of collegiate collaborative way to create right action. So here, back to the scapula, as we lift away from the floor, moving the shoulders into external rotation, we want to draw the inner edges of the shoulder blades together. Now, I'm not saying you've probably never heard that, you've probably even said it, but have you made the connection between that cue, draw the inner edges edges of the shoulder blades together, and the muscle responsible for that, primarily the rhomboids, which run from the medial aspect of the scapula to the transverse processes of several of the vertebrae in the back, the thoracic vertebrae. So as, a, as you're sitting, if you're sitting and you draw the shoulder blades closer together, even interlace your fingers behind your back and squeeze a little more, that's the activation of the rhomboids. This is a back body muscle. This is a posterior chain, posterior back line, superficial back line muscle, and, really helps stretch the front line. So we want students, especially in traditional locusts where the fingers aren't interlaced, to try to get some of what we call scapular mobility. We want them to start to move the scapula on the back. And the scapula themselves are quite movable. Right, They move up, they move down, they upwardly rotate, they downwardly rotate, they move in towards the midline, which is adduction, they move away from the midline, which is abduction. So here, we're asking them to adduct their shoulder blades by contracting the rhomboids, drawing them closer together as they lift up. Now let's go further down the kinetic chain. So we've talked about uh, shoulders, talked about front and back, now let's go to the hips. So as the spine moves into extension, so do the hips. The hips are moving into extension as well. We're not flexing the hips like we would do in boat pose, we're extending the hips. We're creating length along that front line. So now we're talking about lengthening muscles like the psoas and the rectus femoris, part of the quadriceps that crosses the hip. Now one of the things that's kind of curious to me is several times when I go to a yoga class, I'll hear the cue to bring my feet together as I come into locust. And I'm not quite sure where this came from. Because when you think about anatomical position, anatomical position is feet at hip width to create a nice long steady line from the hip joint to the knee to the ankle. As soon as we bring the feet together, like we do in the presentation of a traditional yoga pose, mountain pose, we narrow the base of the posture with respect to the hips, so if we stand up and we bring our feet together, we've got a wider base at the middle uh, in the hip area versus the foot area because the feet are now together, so the pelvis is wider than the base, than the feet together. So now I'm on my belly and I wanna create hip extension, but I'm bringing the feet all the way together, so now I'm focused on squeezing the thighs together, which, what is that, that's adduction, And I may or may not be able to tap into another helpful action in this pose, which is internal rotation, different from abduction, it's rolling in this case, the inner thighs up to the ceiling. If I have my feet apart at hip width, even though I'm not standing, I might create a little more steadiness because now I've got that nice long line from the shoulders to the hips, to the knees, to the feet. I've got that space in between. So now I can potentially create a little more internal rotation in my hips because they're separate. My feet are separated. My thighs are separated, right? My legs have that hip width distance all the way down to the feet, just like they would do in down dog. And as it turns out, we also want to internally rotate the hips in down dog, taking, as you might have heard, the inner thighs back as students are in down dogs. So it's basically the same action, now we're just on the belly doing it in locus pose. So again, I just, um, you know, if we were sitting uh, in a coffee shop having a conversation about this, I would ask you, if you bring, ask students to bring their legs all the way together in locus pose, I would simply ask you, why do you do that? What is the genesis of that request of your students? And that's the kind of thing that you should be thinking as you're cueing your students. Put yourself in their shoes. They're maybe wondering how come she's asking me to bring my legs all the way together. And so if you can provide that rationale as part of your cue, that will really seal it for them and it'll be learning that they take forward. Now again, I'm not saying I'm right. I'm not saying if you bring the legs together, you are wrong, but I'm saying it's really important that you have a reason for everything you do and how you teach it. And for the most part, that reason really lives in the anatomy, right? We're moving people around on the mat. It's a movement-based cue that we're giving, right? I'm not talking spirituality here or eight-limbed-based ideas. I'm talking the physical movement, the rationale lies in the anatomy. Where else is it going to lie? Right? And please don't tell me that's the way you were taught because that, ugh, that just kind of makes the hair on the back of my neck stand up. I want you to start thinking critically yourself about all the things that you're saying, even if some of them were things that you were taught. As you learn from other teachers, as you open your mind, as you do your own reading, as you do additional training, feel free to question what you were taught, right? That's a healthy part of learning, of, of developing as a teacher. So, let's go back, now that we've talked about the different aspects, let's go back to just the general cues for this pose. Now, one other thing I want to say, right, because we've worked from the head to the feet, but I missed giving you a little bit of emphasis around the position of the head. Because we're facing the ground, the natural tendency for students is going to be to drop the head because you're cueing them to lift the chest away from the floor, when many students here lift, they're going to lift from the easiest place, which is they're going to lift their chin and bring their neck into what can be a lot of extension. And what you really want is to help them, like I was saying earlier, strengthen those rhomboids because they've probably been hunching a lot and those muscles don't get a lot of opportunity to contract. So you've probably heard a variety of cues around this. You could ask them to slightly drop the chin. I wouldn't suggest you say drop the chin without the slightly qualifier because drop is a very impactful word. When people hear drop, they're going to drop and you don't want them to bring their head into extreme flexion either. So you might just say slightly drop the chin. You could say slightly drop the gaze. You'd be amazed at just the gaze and the impact that has on neck extension. If they slightly drop the gaze, sometimes people say, look at the middle of the wall in front of you, something along those lines. It will prevent them from taking the neck into a lot of extension. All right, so let's go back to the top. Let's say we have people on the belly and we're gonna cue them into wheel. So here's one suggestion. Extend your arms back straight, turn your palms down, come onto your chin. Slightly lift your chin off the ground and then lift your shoulders off the floor, lift your hands, lift your feet, right? So now you've got them in the shape. So now your job is to watch and to fine tune. So we'll proceed. Draw the inner edges of your shoulder blades together. Notice that you're doing that by moving your shoulder blades closer together rather than interlacing the fingers, although it's the same movement, right? So there, I've asked them to do something and I've related it to something that they've probably done a lot, i.e. the interlacing of the fingers, but I'm asking them to do the action of the scapula of adduction without the leverage or the added piece of interlacing the fingers together. Lift your shoulder blades away from the floor, squeeze the inner edges of the shoulder blades together, extend back through your toes, and roll your inner thighs up to the sky. Roll your inner thighs up to the ceiling. Now, one thing, notice I didn't say extend back through your feet. I do notice that sometimes people flex the feet in this pose. I prefer to have them point the toes, plantar flexion, because that really allows them to get a long line in the muscles of the leg, right? They're uh, contracting the quadriceps, and that can really help them uh, internally rotate the hips, which will facilitate that lengthening of the hip flexors that that we're doing in this pose. The hips are an extension, so that's lengthening the hip flexors, like I said earlier, like the psoas and the rectus femoris. So that's locus for you. That gives you a sense of just the overall cues and the anatomical actions happening in the pose. All right, so let's now go to a related posture, which is bow. So because you're gonna most likely present bow after you do locust, um, I guess one place to start is to um, offer to students that they have the option of doing either one. So let's look at the difference. Now I'm moving into bow where the legs are bent and I'm grabbing the feet. So as soon as I do that, it becomes a closed chain versus the open chain of um, locust, where the legs and arms are reaching back and they're free, right? There's no connection. Once I grab the feet, I create this kind of closed circuit and I'm still creating muscular action. I'm still taking the shoulders into external rotation. I'm still taking the hips into extension, but depending on the range of motion of the muscles that I'm trying to stretch and around the joints that are in action in this posture, because of its locked nature, a lot of undesirable things can happen. And I also have, as a practitioner, a lot of leverage in terms of the muscles of the front of the shoulders. The harder I press my feet to my hands, the more I can potentially overstretch and damage muscles in the front line. When I was talking before about front line versus back line. So again, moderation is key. We don't want to use cues here like, you know, push or you know, obviously we would never say force, but we want to just be really, really aware of the word choice and also really, really, really watching and looking for things like red faces, scrunched up faces like people are in pain. um, A lot of skin, superficial skin, um, uh, kind of stretching that indicates that they're pushing too hard. Other signs that you can keep your eyes out for are knees going wide. Because when we kind of create that closed circuit, that closed environment in which the pose is being done, if there isn't enough requisite range of motion, extensibility in the muscles that we're trying to lengthen, something's going to go awry. And in this particular pose, if the hips can't extend equally on both sides, right? Because we're looking in this posture for bilateral hip extension, both sides of the hip, bilateral hip extension, something's got to give. And in most people, what will give is the knees will splay out. In order for the knees to stay aligned, right? So remember back before in the earlier pose, I was talking about aligning shoulders, hips, knees and ankles rather than bringing feet together. Here, same thing. Uh, Knees are at hip width, feet are at hip width, thighs are internally rotating or quote, rolling up towards the ceiling. We're extending the hips. If they're too tight in this direction, knees are going to pop out. When knees pop out, potentially people can experience compression through the lower back because now we're pressing the two pelvic bones against the sacrum. So that's your SI joint, your sacral iliac joint. And that can sometimes in people feel like there's some pressure in the back but. So this is where, even though it's a little awkward, you could cue to put a block between the thighs. It's kind of hard to do because of the nature of the posture. You can also offer them, of course, to let go of the feet. You can start though with just a simple encouraging word to draw the thighs a little closer together as if they had a block between them. And so maybe just the the offering of the You know, virtual block gives them an idea of coming a little closer with the thighs if they have the range of motion. Now, one of the things I want to really, really throw out there, because I didn't really think about this um, initially when I was, you know, teaching with an anatomical focus when this all started as my focus many, many years ago. But this idea of in a posture like this, additionally, when you think about the um, bilateral hip extension that is required, try to visualize uh, the connection between the femur and the pelvic bone. So now we're not talking about shoulder, of course, like we were before, humerus, glenoid, fossa of scapula. Now we're talking about pelvis, acetabulum, and trochanter of the femur. That is the articulation that makes the hip joint. And then of course, all the related muscles, tendons, ligaments, and fascia. If that connection, well, let me start here. That connection is obviously very different. I mean, there are some just standard differences between men and women with respect to that joint. There are also obviously tons of variability in different people with respect to the articulation at the hip. So again, we're in a closed posture. We're using cues to encourage people to take this pose in a certain way. Sometimes people will hear these cues and will try to force their body into the shape, regardless of feedback they're getting from their body that it just doesn't wanna go that way. So we always wanna leave room in some of these poses where the risk is higher, where it's like a finitely closed type scenario, for people to honor their bodies. And if my cue is something you're trying and it just doesn't feel right, release the feet or don't push so hard into that suggested shape, see how it feels and how it goes for you in your own way. So whatever wording you're going to come up with, you're going to come up with. But I think, you know, that gives you an idea of just this particular feature, which is again, more of a concern in a pose like this, where we have them grabbing their feet and pushing their feet back. So let's go back to the beginning here. Let's talk about how you might cue this, right? So let's say they're on their belly. You could say, reach the arms back, bend the knees, grab the outer edges of the feet. Begin to press gently foot to hand on both sides. As you press back, notice the effect of lifting the chest away from the floor and moderate it as you see <clears throat> so, this way you're giving them fair warning that they shouldn't just press feet to hands, you know, vigorously. They should do it in a way that's mindful so that they can adjust the degree to which they're pushing based on feedback they're getting from their body. So, that's bow. That gives you an idea for bow. So, we've got two more. So, now students are on their back. Let's go into bridge. So now we're again in the same theme anatomy-wise, hip extension, okay, hip extension. Now when we talk about hip extension being the theme from an anatomical standpoint, just like we talked about front body, back body, we have to also talk about the converse. So if something is extending, something is contracting, right? If something is lengthening, something is shortening. So as soon as we talk about hip extension, being the focus from a lengthening perspective, we've got to look at who does the opposite or who, right, who does the opposite, who's doing the strengthening. So in this case, it's the gluteus maximus and the hamstrings. Those are the um, hip extensors that are, doing the job of extending the spine. The um, opposing muscles are the hip flexors. Those are the ones that are lengthening. They are generally muscles like the psoas, which runs from the lumbar spine around the front of the body to the femur. We're talking about part of the quadriceps femoris, which is the rectus femoris that runs from the pelvis down to the knee. We're also talking about the sartorius, which is FYI, the longest muscle in the body that runs from the pelvis. It crosses medially in the thigh and inserts on the medial aspect of the knee. So these are all muscles that flex and um, two of them externally rotate the hip. Now we're trying to lengthen them. So here we have students on the back, we're gonna cue them to come into bridge. So the first thing we're gonna do is say, bend your knees, set your feet flat. Now right out of the gate, I wanna say that this is always a curious one for me because back in the day there used to be this cue to set your feet in a place where if you reach your hands forward, you can graze your heels against your fingertips. Where did this come from? This is another one of those things that I say, who is the person that said this? And like the telephone game, it just filtered its way through so many states and studios and places and teachers all over the country, say this, probably all over the world. Let's think about this, friends. If you are laying on your back and you bend your knees and set your feet flat and you're preparing to come into bridge, if you pull your heels in too close, And you begin to use your glute max and to use your hamstrings to extend the hip. It is going to be a lot harder to do it if your heels are tucked in, because as you lift, your knees are going to protrude, stick out past your ankles. So if I look at someone positioned like this from the side, their knees are out here and their heels are back here. So, their shin bone, their tibia and fibula, shin bones, are at an angle, inward angle, like a backslash. And so, what does this do? Right, right? Like, why why am I getting all bothered about this? Well, the reason is this pose requires we use the power of the glutes and the, the glute max and the hamstrings to lift the hips off the floor. In order to do that, I need leverage. Why would I want to do something that decreases my leverage by preventing me from stacking my knee over my heel, right? It's like saying, come into plank, but move your hands forward a little bit so your shoulders are not stacked over your wrist and hold it for a minute versus come into plank, stack your shoulders over your wrist and push straight down your joint line. No kidding. It's going to be a lot easier in the second scenario than the first. If I want to really take it far, I'm going to push back to down dog right? So then my joints are at an angle. My arm bones are at an angle, but I want that in down dog because I'm focusing on stretch. In bridge, I'm focusing on lower body strength. And to get that, I need to stack the knees over the heels. I need to stack those joints so I can get the most out of my, again, here we are, posterior chain, glutes and hamstrings to get my hips up off the floor. Okay, so that's part one. Now part two, and this is gonna come up in wheel, which is that my glute max has a dual function. It is a hip extensor, but it's also an external rotator. So that means that unless me, the user of my body, is aware, I'm gonna turn my feet out. I'm gonna externally rotate my hips. If I, as the user of my body, is I'm not aware that external rotation is one of the things that the glute max does, it's gonna just do it because my muscles are gonna act at the um, you know, whim of my, of my nervous system unless I use my brain and tell my muscles to do something different, tell my nervous system to send a different message to those muscles. And so this is the genesis of that cue to stick the block between the thighs. And again, this is one of those things that's been out there forever who's the person that came up with this? I don't know. I certainly hope that when they came up with this cue, they understood the anatomy and they didn't just say it just for the heck of it, but I wouldn't be surprised if that, if that was the nature of it. So be that as it may, I'm now giving you the reason why. So we don't want students to externally rotate the hips because then we're gonna be in the same problem that we potentially were in in bow, where I was on the belly, my knees were going wide, right? So now I'm in the same scenario doing the same thing. I'm still extending the hips. I just flipped over. Now I'm on my back. I'm not on my belly. Same deal though, same anatomical action. So if I have them put a block between the thighs and focus on hugging in, they'll be less apt to turn their feet out. Better yet, why not have them put the block between the feet? Not parallel to the feet, but perpendicular to the feet. So they've got hip width, there it is again, hip width between the feet, hug the insteps of your feet against the block, root down into your feet, lift your hips, keep that pressure of the insteps of your feet hugging into the block, and this, my friends, this will absolutely prevent external rotation in the hips, because even if you have them put the block between the thighs, The body, again, is going to do what it wants to do unless the user is super aware of what's going on, and many people, as they hug that block, their feet still turn out. And so, again, not a huge issue uh, in the big picture, but, you know, I'm trying to uh, uh, give you the information about the anatomy, so, you know, I'm kind of taking it to the level of all these details. So, now let's move into positioning the upper body. So initially you might have them take bridge with the arms by the side, and then you might have them interlace their fingers underneath them. And again, just like we talked about in locust, as soon as they interlace their fingers together, we don't care about the fingers. Great. You interlace your fingers, but guess what, everybody? I really want you to adduct your your scapula. That's really what I want you to do. I just had you interlace the fingers because that's generally something that people get. But really, once they're interlaced, focus on your scapula. Focus on your shoulder blades and draw your shoulder blades closer together because now it's going to happen. Now they're going to open the front line of the body. So this is another thing that is helpful as teachers we recognize. When we cue to a particular body part, if the real issue is another part of the body, we've got to speak to that. Otherwise, everybody's gonna be thinking, in this case, about the fingers and not thinking anything about the shoulder blades. Once they've got the fingers interlaced, once they're drawing the shoulder blades together, have them press down into the full length of the arms because now they can distribute the effort of this posture beyond just glutes and hamstrings, up the chain, up the kinetic chain, into the arms, into the shoulders, not so much the back of the head, but definitely the full length of both arms and the shoulders. So now I've taken a tough pose and I've distributed the effort so it's a lot more accessible and easier to do. So let's, in wrapping this one up, let's go back to the beginning and let's talk about how the cues could be. So set your feet down flat, not necessary that you be able to touch your heels, simply put your feet in a place where as you lift up you feel like you have good leverage. If you don't, move your feet a little forward, a little back, until you feel like you can lift. Now, let me just stop here by saying, you might think, wow, that's a lot of words. You're gonna say it how you're gonna say it, but I think it can be helpful to acknowledge that there's a lot of cueing out there to touch the heels. And if you agree that that's not necessary, and in fact is gonna create not so great alignment in your students, give them the reason why, because you know they're gonna be hearing that in other classes, so you might as well just address it, right, and solve the mystery. So set your feet down flat, Set your feet in a position where you don't necessarily need to touch your heels. You just want to have good leverage to lift your hips off the floor. Begin to press down and lift your hips off the floor. Interlace your fingers underneath you. Draw your shoulder blades closer together and start to press down, pressing off of the full length of your arms and shoulders. Take three breaths. Right? So this will give you an idea. If they've got the block, you can also add in, hug, your, hug the inner edges of your feet against the block. Try to resist any urge you have to turn the feet out. If it feels uncomfortable, let them do what they're going to do. Right? So there's your acknowledgement around that whole issue of whatever kind of articulation they have at the hip joint, whatever kind of you know, situation might be happening there where they feel uncomfortable forcing it. So that's, uh, that's bridge. So let's go to the last one, which is uh, wheel pose. So here we go. Wheel has a lot of similarities with bridge because of course it's the same action of hip extension, bilateral hip extension and contraction of glute max uh, and hamstrings in order to take the hips into extension, but now the movement's just bigger. Right? We've gone from that kind of natural curves in the spine to a lot, a lot, a lot of spinal extension. And so all the things I talked about in bridge, namely the you know, kind of urge to turn the feet out and externally rotate the hips is only going to be amplified here because it's a much bigger movement. I need more power to come into that um, spinal extension. It's a much bigger action. In fact, it's so big that I will say personally, I went through a phase a couple years ago where I didn't even want to teach it. I didn't even want to teach the pose. I felt like every time I taught wheel, all it was for most of the people in the class was a struggle. And I started to say to myself, why am I teaching a posture that is unlike any other movement people are doing during the day. They're not reaching for their dinner dishes in their cabinets by turning around and leaning back. They're not doing anything, right? They're not doing anything. They're not in the shower. Reach, they're not doing anything, not even at the gym. You know, I would love it if people would go to the gym and take those big exercise balls and literally lay over the ball and get their nervous system acclimated to this idea of, spinal extension in this way, but they're not doing that. So, you know, without completely tossing the pose, it's, a, it's one of those poses where we really need to understand how to cue, what is the anatomy involved, and really be watching our students. Okay, so let's kind of take it from the top. Set the feet down flat, and again, you can use the block, as I explained in Bridge. Set the hands up by the head, palms facing down, fingers tucked towards the shoulders. Hug the elbows in. All right, so let's think about this. The shoulders are in flexion, right? So it's just like if I reach my arms up in the air, shoulders are in flexion there, just because I bent them and I'm lying on my back, doesn't make any difference, still shoulder flexion, right? But now, just like when I move from high to low push-up, I don't wanna take my elbows out, I wanna hug my elbows in. I don't want to use the trapezius and elevate my shoulder blades. If I hug my elbows in, I'm going to use a little more of the serratus to keep the shoulder blades hugged onto the back. And they'll upwardly rotate a bit as I lift up off the floor. But because students oftentimes are unfamiliar with moving in this way, their body is going to go where it's going to go, the most easiest way to move. And so for many people, those elbows are going to wing out as they lift up and they're using their lower body power to lift up. So that's why it can be helpful to cue, keep the elbows moving in towards one another as you come up in the pose. That mimics what we were talking about before with respect to the feet, positioning, to the, positioning of the feet, preventing glute uh, max from its tendency to also externally rotate the hips. That's why you have the block between the thighs or the block between the feet. So one thing that I've started to do in, I don't know, probably like the past six months, even though I used to kind of be against this because I was worried about the safety of their cervical spine, is I've started to say to people, or I offer the first pose to be two or three seconds on the crown of the head, just to give you a chance to move in this way, recognizing that this is a movement we really don't do at all. And so I say that in a way to not say, oh my God, you guys, you're never gonna be able to do this, (laughs) right? That's not the underlying message. The message is an acknowledgement, a recognition of the fact that they don't usually move in this way. And so give yourself a second or two to get oriented to moving in this way by just coming up to the crown of your head and trying to keep those two right actions of feet straight ahead, elbows in. So I encourage you to try this and see as they pop up onto the crown and come down, what kinds of things happen. From there, you could teach two or three more and let them go to whatever degree they want, offering them the opportunity to um, take bridge instead. What I would really, really encourage you to do though is teach wheel. Rather than getting to this point in the practice after you've taught a couple of bridges and then proceed by saying, proceed with wheel if that's in your practice really use the time you have in the studio to teach your students, rather than just throwing out this kind of blanket statement to do it if it's in your practice. Because for many people, it's not in their practice, but they want it to be in their practice and they need you to explain to them how to do it. So the other thing I was gonna add in terms of this is that if you're doing sequencing prior to wheel, and you are doing some standing uh, postures where they're in a standing straddle position, have them reach their arms up in the air in a standing straddle. Look up to the sky and go up and back. Because here in this way, we've taken again a closed posture like, uh, like wheel, and we've opened it up by having the arms reaching up to the sky, but we're still having people go into spinal extension Um, and hip extension, but they don't, it's not like you're going to ask them in the standing straddle to go up and back and go all the way back and end up in wheel. You're just asking them to move in that direction. And because that standing straddle oftentimes comes kind of halfway through the practice, it's perfectly positioned to start to acclimate their body to what will then eventually show up when they get down to the back and they're being asked to go into bridge and wheel. And again, a really helpful thing to do is to call back to that. So as you're moving people into wheel, call back to, hey, remember when I had you in that standing straddle and I had you reach up to the sky and go up and back? This is the same thing. This is the same motion, except your feet are closer together and now you're on the ground. So you're gonna need a little more oomph out of the lower body musculature to get your hips up, but see if you kinda harken back when we did that pose a few minutes ago that's the same action you wanna take. So this can be helpful to start to help students connect the dots as to the anatomy links, some similar movements they're making, because guess what? If they did that and it felt okay, they can call back to that sensation in their body when they come into wheel. That's a really big factor we need to acknowledge as teachers, the nervous system's role is to protect us. If we're asking students to do things in class where their nervous system sends off an alarm, they're gonna back off. So, if you can present similar anatomical movements in, in poses, and then as uh, the exercise requirement progresses to a higher level of skill and mobility and extensibility and strength, you can call back to that earlier thing you did that was you know, not as difficult. If they did that, they can call on some of the things they did and just apply it to that action as well. So, huh, this is a good place to stop. I'm like literally sitting here at my desk in my apartment and I'm like completely exhausted because I really try to give you guys a lot of not only information, but do it in an energetic way to keep you engaged. So I hope, you know, this gives you, you know, kind of a good chunk about these, uh, these, these postures on the floor. Now, as I said, my anatomy manual will walk you through this and more for each pose. So visit the books page on my website, barebonejoker.com to pick up that manual. So what's our action plan here? What can you do as a next step if you're wondering how to build up a bigger repertoire of solid cues? So the first thing is get really comfortable with action and alignment cues before you bring in the anatomy. The second thing is teach from the ground up, right? So that really holds for any pose you're doing. Start your cues at the ground and work up the chain. The next thing is keep cues simple and think of formatting each pose to three to five actions tops. Now you'll notice my style is a little conversational, but I can tell you, even the class I taught last night, I could tell the energy was a little low. People seemed a little distracted. I literally was like, bam, 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 bam. I just said the words and moved on. I didn't add a lot of commentary. I didn't add a lot of explanation. I just stuck with action words. That can be really, really effective. Another thing you can do is to record yourself teaching and listen back. You can practice with your own recording and see how your own words land on your body. And another thing you can do is, of course, keep watching your students as you teach to see how the cues land. If you don't see what you want, make one effort to reword it, and if you're still not seeing what you want, just move on, right? Because you don't want to be nitpicking on that. And then the last thing is if you're a newer teacher and you're teaching by practicing with your students, start to make the transition to teaching without practicing. This will give you a really good opportunity to see how your cues land on your students. So I want to end with three specific ways that I can help you further. The first one is set up a consult with me for a half hour call. We'll go over what your biggest challenges are when it comes to learning anatomy, and I'll create a customized plan for you. Set it up by emailing me via my website, barebonejoga.com, and you're going to see the offer for this consult right on my homepage, which I just redesigned last week with this in mind. The next thing is review my webinar on cues, and I'm going to include the link in the show notes for this episode. And then the last thing is, is purchase my anatomy manual and go through the poses section. Try out some of my cues and make notes afterward about how they felt, how they worked out for you, and make notes for each one with any change you liked. So we've reached the end of the podcast today. I want to hear from you, just like that comment I read at the beginning of this episode. So wherever you're listening, leave a comment. You can always also just post on social media as well. And I really, really, really want to thank you for listening uh, to this podcast. And I so look forward to hearing from you. Namaste.